welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Starting with you, I think. Um, and my thought was we'd do that for the first 30 minutes. I think, where's my schedule? I think we have uh, 45 minutes. Yeah, and then I'll talk, I'll talk a little bit at the end about some stuff. Um, That's how it happens. Show up, Jim. <laughs> uh, you look great. You know, uh, how, many, how many of you heard Jess a couple of years ago in the tape? I, I mean, I heard it because it's on tape. So maybe about a third of us. Um, one of the things Jess talked about was that essay shine that appears in people's faces. And uh, I wouldn't want to be the say I'm the one that can see it all the time. I know what he means, though, when he talks about it, and and so you know, in terms of looking good, that's that really happens, and and sometimes it's a smile, but a lot of times it's just a being present. Because I didn't realize till I'd been sober a while that I could see when someone else was clicking out. You know, they were looking at a, a body part, or off in a fantasy, or they just didn't want to be with me, or whatever. It was really obvious. And then one day I was having that observation one day and all of a sudden I realized, oh, that means people saw it in me all along, too. That was really humbling. Anyway, um, you, you were starting to say something and I cut you off and I thought we'd start there. I'm Bob and I'm a sexaholic. Uh, the, reason, the reason I got into this is my I was in therapy and my therapist, after listening to all my stories of all my affairs, said, I think... You're a sex addict, because I didn't know what a sex addict was, and she suggested I take some kind of test on the internet. There was a test you could take that was on some internet site, and it had a scale of like zero to sixty. And I took this test, I answered all the questions, and I ended up with a fifteen, which was kind of just starting into a sex addict area. And I thought, is this sort of like being a little bit pregnant? You know, I am I just a little bit of a sex addict? But I I noticed at lunchtime. You know, I, was, I had to get up, actually get up and move because there were girls down there and I was looking at them, you know, and, and I, I just find that anybody that's got any kind of a shape, I'm looking at them. And, and so it's been a real tough struggle for me to be, to admit that I'm a sex addict, but I'm, I, 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 I know that I am. So I guess step one, I can check off. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. I only got 19 out of 20. So, so I'm probably not, I'm sure there's some 20 out of 20s here, but, um, you know, I, I worked in, um, I shouldn't go here, but I'm going to anyway. I worked in treatment field for quite a while, and, and we do assessments. 
And and the woman who was teaching me this originally said, David, one thing that's, this was mostly alcoholics and, and drug addicts, she said, one thing that it's really just a good position to start with is assume they're lying. Now, I thought, I really thought that was very harsh of her. Uh, and and her name was Nan, and Nan really was just trying to be helpful to me. Um, and and it was took me a long time, and I realized later why I reject. I didn't reject her. I, I thought she was probably right. I just didn't understand why. And I realized it's because of that minimizing thing, you know, that I really and why I filled out those twenty questions pretty honestly the first time. I really couldn't tell you because I've gone back and looked at the list since, and I found myself arguing with them. You know, and I think it was just that I was so desperate. And if we have any possibility of minimizing the the damage, my experience is I'll do it, you know, or as my sponsor said, make it look pretty, you know, and make it into a virtue or something. You know, the the great lover is a love cripples, what Roy says. Um, so, the, you know, I think that's there. The other thing that I point out to people and is and. I was telling someone at the break, you know, anything I ever tell someone to read, my rule is I have to go read it myself, which has definitely improved how often I tell you to go read something. But um, but in fact, it takes me back to a lot of these things. Well, there's that section in how it works. And and this, of course, we read in meetings, so I don't need to tell people to go read it so often. But I have to be reminded that this is the easier, softer way you know what we're doing right here today is for the lazy people you know if you want to do it the hard way go back out there you know do it your way you know go go for the 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 other approaches to getting better and to healing and and insight and all that kind of stuff and if it works good but if you're a sexaholic this is the easier softer way here and i'm always i'm thrilled someone called me yesterday and in the same conversation, he said, well, I think I'm probably not a sexaholic. I said, well, that's great. And I said, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. And then he said, I'm going off to treatment Sunday. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. Um, and, and, he, and I said, who's paying for it? And he said, my, my parents are paying the $33,000. And I said, oh, my God. Um, but, you know... If there are other approaches that work, fine. But if you're a sexaholic, if, if you identify with the stuff you find on that Internet site or you find in these meetings, I promise you the 12 steps is the lazy way to go. It's just going to be a lot easier than any of the alternatives. But that's a long-winded answer to your very direct question. Let's just, people, yeah. Hi, my name is Dan. I'm a sexaholic. A couple things that you said was that, you know, every day that to for you, to you know, work your recovery program that you don't do it on your own. And I also heard today that you know I I do attend a lot of meetings and uh, try to do you know my service and stuff like that. But it's still like the program doesn't work. Or I, I don't get it through osmosis by just showing up and being here and working here. But where my difficulty runs into is the fact that you know I, I used to joke around about making phone calls that my phone weighed 500 pounds. Well, it still does. And I really find it difficult to reach out and really, you know, just sometimes share. I can share in meetings and stuff like that, but, you know, my problem is is that, you know, when I'm on my own, I really do live with my own feelings. And uh, to admit my feelings to another is really difficult for me. So 
I just want to, you know, I heard what you were saying about, you know, every day you used to, you had to make a phone call um, to, as part of your program, you have people do the same thing for you. And I don't know if I could do that, you know. I mean, I, I'm not there right now, but I, I just, I, I would like to hear what your comments about phone calls and stuff like that, how that works for you. Thanks. I'm David Sexaholic. Um, you know, I, I do... Um, have people call me daily the way I called my sponsor daily and, and, and still call as frequently as we can get through to each other. And, um, and it really is true what my sponsor said to me that it doesn't matter so much what is said. It's just what's in the voice, what's in the spirit. Um, and the only way that happens is if we talk every day. Um, on the other hand, when someone calls me, I was just checking messages just a few minutes ago, and, and a couple people called who call pretty regularly. And, and I was glad to hear from them because what I say to them over and over again, and again, this is for me, it's not for them, is that the only conceivable reason I can think of that they're calling me is to keep me sober. And I tell them, if you ever get the sense that I'm there to help you or to understand you, please hang up on me. And maybe I'll get better and not do that the next time. And I think they think I'm joking, but I'm really being very serious. Um, I need the calls to stay sober. It's just what works. I need to make calls to keep my sponsor sober, because Lord knows, you know. And, um, and and that's how we how it works for me. So it changes the motive in the phone call to instead of helping David either way. Um, do something particular. It's it's to keep sobriety alive uh, in someone else. And and see, I can help somebody else. I just can't help myself. My my sponsor said to me one of the most helpful things he ever. He's, that's not true. He said lots of helpful things to me. One of the many helpful things he said to me was David. The only thing, and this is when I was in my atheist kick, which went on for forty three, forty four years, and and. Uh, he said, David, the only thing you have to know about your higher power is it's not you. <laughs> and that may seem really simple, but it's exactly the level at which I could understand him. You know, I could understand that. And and that's what I still have to go back to. The, the only person I cannot help is me. You know, I might be able to be helpful to somebody else in order to keep myself sober, but I can't do it for myself. I can't see myself getting better. You know, I'll I'll talk to someone like you people, and and I'll see. Oh, I used to handle that that way. I haven't done that in a while. Uh, but in fact, I cannot. I could never come up with that on my own until someone else says, "Oh, I've changed," or "This isn't. This is the way it is for me today." And oh, yeah, that's that's funny. I've forgotten that. And that happens over and over. Uh, the other thing is minimums. And I told somebody I was going to mention this. So I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, there's an AA uh, speaker in Atlanta named Noel B. And uh, Noel is a, a Catholic priest and, and very articulate and, and fun to listen to. But he also has, you know, everybody has their little shtick. And his little shtick has been so wonderful. He says, the way this program works in his experience is find the least you can do every day. So, for instance, if you're trying to read and you're trying to read two pages and you're not doing it, read one page. If you're trying to read and you're trying to read one page and you're not doing it, 
read one paragraph. I, as a guy that I that we talk on the phone fairly regularly, and he could never read the AA Big Book. He wanted to, and he's about three years. He's got 15 years now, I guess, and he could never read it until he finally started reading one paragraph. And it took him, I think, two years. But in fact, he read the entire AA Big Book. Now he's still reading it. But he's still, I think he's still reading one paragraph. Uh, well, it's the same with phone calls. Uh, find the absolute minimum number of phone calls you can make every day or receive or whichever. And and I've tried to do that with this, not only program stuff, but I've found that actually works in all aspects of my life. We need to re-roof a little building at our house, and and I've just been finding the least I can do on a regular basis. It's not quite daily because I'm gone a lot. But um, I do that with my work. I do it with almost everything. Just Break it down to the least. And I always, I was an all or nothing kind of guy. I was had to do more, do it better, do more of it, do it more frequently. And of course, like everything else, I had it backwards. So. Hi, I'm Joe. I'm a sexaholic. Um, I, I have a different approach. I know we all struggle with the terminal uniqueness, um, but mine's worse than everybody else's. So. Um, I just I came to this program through a different avenue. Um, I really came into it through just tons of fear and wanting or needing to escape acting out so that this punishing God I had wouldn't throw me into hell. And that was the strange kind of twisted way that I came in. And that was about four years ago, and um, maybe five years ago. And I really haven't gotten far since then. Um, I don't find a lot of willingness to um, do the things that I need to do. I find a lot of denial about even that I am a sexaholic, uh, although I identify, I know the behaviors, I know all the stuff about myself that identifies and puts me here. But um, I just wanted to know, um, I'm feeling really hopeless right now about the fact that I don't want to go out and get in more pain. I'm terrified of pain. I'm a wimp. Um, and I don't really seem to have... Uh, that deeper connection with the program either. So I'm sort of in this in-between place and um, don't really connect with getting sober for myself, you know, to, to recover. Um, and I just wondered what you thought about that. What I, what could I do about that? Is there such a thing as a high-bottom sexaholic? And uh, can I become one of those if I, you know, is there some minimum thing I can do, like you were saying, to just at least stay on track? But what happens is I'll, I'll make a move toward recovery and I get slammed back down by the addiction and um, I go act out and I get nowhere. I, you know, I appreciate, I'm David Sexaholic, I appreciate your being so straightforward. Um, what it says in the AA Big Book is we're driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-seeking, self-delusion, and self-pity. And that's very much my disease. Um, and Clancy talks about, you know, in, re, in he says AA, but it would fit recovery too. You know, we, we all rally under one flag, and it's just got a plain color, and on it are written the words, but you don't understand. My case is different. And, and that's what my brain tells me over and over again, that I'm different. And if there's one common word, a little bit in the AA Big Book, but especially in the 12 and 12, it's the word humility, which means of the earth. Literally, it's the same as humus, human, you know. 
And it just means we're all dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And and I can act like that's not the case, and I frequently do, and it'll kill me, you know. And it'll certainly lead me to a point of being hopeless. I've had 13 people that I've either sponsored or been close to now kill themselves in 13 years. So I run about one a year. And um, I'm really tired of it. You know, I'm just, it's not that I'm tired of it. I mean, they're going to kill themselves. They kill themselves. I'm just really, really sad about it. You know, that I had one guy who wanted to go to prison rather than do a fifth step. Okay. Um, another guy uh, wanted to go to prison rather than even investigate SA. You know, I think he was one of us, but, you know, he wasn't able to do that because he said, well, there's no God. <laughs> Okay, but we don't need a God. It's just a higher power. And, you know, so he died in prison after about two years. And, uh, you know, this is, I think, in fact, I was saying this uh, to someone. I think one of the things that we under, we, we underplay some things in this program, in my experience. And one is that it's a disease that's chronic, progressive, and fatal. It goes on for a long time, 38 years in my case. It's progressive. It gets worse. My disease has definitely gotten worse in sobriety. Uh, and I know because you were talking about watching people go by. I don't even have to know what you saw because I put myself out there, you know. And and I can't tell you how many rear ends I've scoped just in the open door there in the time we've been here together. So it's at least six, probably, maybe five, maybe seven. But, you know, I know close. It's funny. I always knew how frequently I'd masturbated and when, too. But anyway, um you know, this disease is chronic and progressive. It gets worse, and it's fatal. And I remember I'd been sober about six, eight months. I was sitting in a meeting, and some guy was talking about whatever. And I was thinking, oh, well, I didn't do that, and I'm glad I'm not dead. And I thought, after a minute of that, I thought, that is ridiculous. I've killed off marriages. I've killed off jobs. I've killed off friendships. I've certainly killed off respect for myself in the community. Um, the only thing I hadn't yet gotten around to was killing off me. And, in fact, I had almost gotten around to that right before I came into the program. And, um, you know, it's, it really is a fatal disease. And, and then the other thing is I think we underplay its cunning, baffling, and powerful, you know. And Clancy says, we have a disease that tells us we're not sick. He said, that baffle anybody, you know. And, and I do. I have a disease that says... Well, you're okay. You're just a normal man. You just, you know, do this. And if I don't restart every day on this program, I'm going to start believing that crap. And and it's a very cunning disease. My disease today mostly takes the form of being thoughtful and introspective and outgoing. And and it's also very powerful. It just really does. It distorts every relationship I have. And I just have to go back to those basics, cunning, baffling, and powerful. It's chronic, progressive, and fatal. And I know sometimes we make fun of the phrases, you know, let go and let God, one day at a time, easy does it, all those things. And in fact, what I've come to realize just personally is that's all I can understand. You know, I'm really good with words. I mean, that's just not one of my problems. But the but the problem is I'm so good with words that I abuse them, you know, which is what I did with everything else. So why am I surprised? Uh, I remember with my therapist uh, just a few years ago, uh, sitting in his office and 
I don't know what subject we've gone on. It doesn't really matter. I got totally full of emotion. And within about two minutes, I was just laughing my head off. I said, I never realized when I'm having an emotion, I'm speechless, <laughs> you know, because what I do is talk. And when I'm full of emotion, I literally run out of words. And and that's all I have is the emotion itself. Well, I have talked my way through so many situations that I all I can say is I'm often not present. So the other thing that just came to me as I was listening to you is because um, I spotted I got it um, is pride, you know, will will knock me right over the cliff again. You know, if I think I'm better than or different than and, and I often talk about myself just being a bozo on the bus, not because it's a cute phrase, but because that's the truth. And anytime I think that I'm better than or smarter than or harder working than or whatever than, I'm in I'm going off the edge. And and I don't want to go there anymore. I, I don't think I can get back up. Now, maybe other people can, but I can't. Who's someone was waving? Hi, I'm Gary, I'm a sex addict. Um, I've known I'm an addict for uh, about 12 years now, and uh, 12 years ago I met the woman that I'm still married to and uh, made some attempts at recovery back then and actually had a, about a seven-year period where I was faithful to her. We got married. Uh, I, I was pretty happy. I did pretty well. Um, so the addict was still there, but four years ago totally uh, took over. Um Started flirting, started intriguing, eventually had an affair, and then an affair on the person I was having an affair with, and then it just kept going from there. Um, about um, six and a half months ago, my wife found out and um, busted me. So I've been back in program and working pretty hard since then. Um Something happened during uh, the last break that I'm still sitting with. And I don't know if this is uh, too much pride or, or uh, not uh, dealing with it. So I just want to say it and just hear a response. Um, the, uh, the woman who was presenting talked about um, picking men who couldn't love or support her. And my wife said that that's the part she resonated with the most. She's here today. Um, that she has a series of men that she's picked who can't love and support her, can't love and support her. Um, I know for four years I really didn't love and support her in my behavior. Uh, but I know I have a very strong reaction to that phrase. I, I'm one of those who can't love and support her. And I start to get defensive. And then she gets angry because I'm not respecting her experience. Uh, and we get caught in that over and over, and um, uh, we're we're really very much on the edge right now of whether we're going to be able to be together. Um, and um, anyway, that's that's I, I'm not I'm at a loss. There are a whole bunch of things I'd like to pick up on in that. Um, and thanks for sharing it. I'm David Sexaholic. Um, 
my wife, as I said earlier, couldn't come to where I work for four months after I got sober. And, and it was her rage toward the other women. She just couldn't do it. And then she started coming. And it, that part went okay. But because of the nature of the situation, the woman with whom I'd had the last affair would be very public on a regular basis. And it, you know, it really humiliated my wife. It was, made me feel nervous as a cat on a hot skittle, skittle, skettle. What do you call this thing? <laughs> Skillet. And, uh, I mean, it was just very awkward. But we kept going along. I'd been sober two years and a couple months when I said to my wife at home, in private, wherever we were, no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. I am married to you. I pretty much quoted Roy from the White Book on page 133. I'm married to you. I don't understand the reason why. It's just the relationship God's put me in, and I'm here. And the only thing that's going to end it is death. You know, and and maybe not even that, but I'm not going. Well, about three months later, I was in a position where I was able to write this in something that was printed in public. And I just wrote what I just said. I said I discovered it happened to be our anniversary. That was the excuse. And I said, you know, I'm married to my wife. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, that's just the way it is. It was, you know, perfectly appropriate kind of thing to write, both in terms of the context and how I was feeling and what I'd said to her several months before. The woman never came back. She never, she didn't leave the institution. She just never did anything public again. And she never was an issue for us again. And I didn't know that I had not publicly cut the string. And she was holding on to it, you know. And um, it really... It hit me in a couple of ways. First of all, it was only my willingness to make that absolute commitment to my wife. And you got to remember, I mean, you don't know. I haven't told you yet. I, for the first 12 years, we've been married 25 and a half years now. For the first 12 years, I killed this woman off daily in my mind. Either I killed her, she killed me, she left me, I left her. I mean, but for one reason or another, she was gone. And it wasn't until I'd been sober about a year and a half that I realized I had stopped doing that. I don't know when I stopped. Uh, but And it was that was the background of my finally saying to her, I'm not going anywhere, because I'd stopped killing her off. And in fact, I've only done it once, and that was about two or three months ago, and I don't remember why, but I remember thinking, oh my God, I haven't done that in a long time. And I was grateful for that. So anyway, I was going to stay with this woman no matter what. Well, I had to make that internal commitment and then make it to her, and I probably said it in meetings, knowing me, and then finally I could say it publicly, and and that's just the way it is, and it still is to this to this day. Um, and I certainly don't understand it, because, you know, we're good at pushing each other's buttons. The other thing is, um, I was told some things that have really helped me keep my balance in relationships, and marriage specifically. Uh and one is, and the backdrop for that is whatever it says it on page, I don't remember the page number, where it says we cease fighting anything or anybody. Is that 83 or somewhere in there? Um, I realize I, that no matter what, I cannot fight with my wife or anybody else for that matter and stay healthy. I can definitely fight and get sick. That's easy. I prove that all the time. So uh, I was taught this phrase, uh, 
two phrases, actually. Uh, one is, thank you for caring so much. And the other is, you may be right. And no matter what my wife says, I will say one or the other. Now, I got that from an AA guy. And um, I've really, I need it a lot. <laughs> and uh, But I'm not going to fight. Now, my wife hates it when I say that. Because she thinks, you know, I'm just evading the issue. I'm being silly. I'm just bringing in program jargon, uh, whatever. The truth is, though, I'm not going to fight, <laughs> you know, no matter what. And it's not be- for her. It's not even for me. I mean, it's for me. It's not for us. It's just that I can't handle it and stay sober. So I keep saying that over and over again. And it's gotten to a point now where it's a joke. I mean, she'll say, you may be right, or thank you for caring so much. And it's kind of just funny. Um the other thing that has probably also allowed me to keep my balance more than anything else, and it applies as much to me as to anybody else, is if I spot it, I got it. Uh, that is, anything that I see in you or anybody else is an issue for me. Um, so if I resonate with pride, it's because I have pride, you know, a lot of it. And, 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 I, and it's true with any recovery issue. Well, it's true with my wife. You know, if there's something I'm taking her inventory on, it's a spot that I got it. It's something I don't want to deal with me. The reverse, however, is in some ways even more useful. Because particularly with, with people we're close to, um, and that is if someone says something to me that's hurtful, if I can put that little layer of, oh, if you spot it, you got it, in place between us, then I don't have to fall over or even get knocked off, you know, my balance. Too much anyway. I'll get knocked off some, but and people can say very hurtful things, and what Bill W says is anything anybody says, we consider it. All right, is it true? If it's true, then we change. Is it partly true? Well then we thank them for that. Thank you for caring so much, and we change that part. Is none of it true? Well, then we just love them as a fellow person in the program who's just having a tough day, you know. And 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 what happens is if I use if I spot it I got it and and in my experience that and if I'm disturbed the problems in me are my balancing tools uh, then I can she can say things and so what was it your wife was saying about relationships she has relationships with pince men who can't now I'm going to take your wife's inventory here but I'll, I won't I won't swear to it in public so I'll deny that I ever said it. Uh, but you know what I what it's on tape. Uh, what I have to do to listen to that kind of statement, you know, I pick men who are not capable of loving me, is I listen to that and I say, oh, what an interesting thing to tell me about yourself that you have trouble loving other people, men, perhaps. Now, do I say that out loud? Well, let me tell you. I used to say it out loud. I used to say, oh, if you spot it, you got it. That means, and all I can say is that was really, really dumb. <laughs> I, I, trashed, I trashed some good friendships because I said that. I was so enthusiastic about you spot it, you got it, with my sponsor or shared a meeting. But it's definitely kept me from getting out of balance. And I just say, well, haven't you said the most interesting thing about yourself? Now, is it true about me? Well, yeah, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's the total truth. And then I better say, thank you for caring so much, or you may be right. Um, but that may sound like a lot of machinations and thinking, but the truth is I have this whole range of unhealthy thoughts that I go to like that. And I've had to train myself very slowly and imperfectly at best 
to put some healthier thoughts, and those are some of the ones. And it's just it's just discipline. Do it, do it, do it. Make mistakes, make mistakes, make mistakes. It does get better. My experience is most marriages stay together overall, but some do not. There's no doubt about it. My name is Bernard. I'm still a sex addict or sexaholic. Uh, I just noticed I, re- I really resonated with what you were saying about that. You know, when, when I heard that woman said I wanted to kill her, I really, I mean, I was so angry, you know, and she shared that, you know, that, uh, that, uh, that thing about, uh, you know, finding men that could not support and love. Uh, and I immediately identified with it. I immediately saw myself as a person who could not love and support. But then what I realized about myself is that I'm this all or nothing kind of person, you know, and especially when I deal with myself, especially when I deal with myself. And to tell the truth, sometimes I'm a real sweet guy. And sometimes I really am so egomaniacal that I don't see anybody around me. I've noticed conversations today where all I did was just figure out what's the next thing I'm going to say and didn't even think about the other person at all. But I've also noticed that I ask questions sometimes of people because I wanted to draw out information about them and just show them that I cared about them. So a lot of me is really self-centered and egomaniacal, really a lot, but some of it isn't. You said... Those two, the thing you last said, you said once before, and, and there was one critical difference, and, and it's a game you can play with yourself that I think you'll find helpful. The first time you said it, I'm a nice guy and I'm egomaniacal. The last time you said it, you said I'm a nice guy, but I'm egomaniacal. My experience is the and is closer to the truth. You know, that I am a nice guy and a jerk. I am insightful and totally blind. You know, I am, and that's just the way I come. And I'll tell you, that's one does wonders for the bozo on the bus thing, uh, because there's always some bozo who's doing it better than I am at that moment, and there's others doing it worse, and I'm just doing my best. And I certainly identify with everything you said. Uh, Mark was next in there. My name is Mark. I'm a sexaholic, and. Um, I came into the program and I, my higher power at best was somebody who was out there, way out there that just kind of set the clock in motion and let it go. And at worst was somebody who was playing jokes on us. And I guess I'd like to find out more about how you, the process you went through to, to come in contact with a, a power greater than yourself. Um, thanks. And, I've shared a little bit of it. You know, it started with my sponsor saying to me, it's just not you, David, the higher power. I was willing to do that. It also helped that I was totally desperate. And so I was willing just to come to the meetings, to listen to the God talk, even though it made me cringe, um, to start working the steps without challenging that. And after I'd done a little bit of that, I I realized that God doesn't actually appear in the steps till the third step, and I was on one and two, and I could back off a little bit. So that helped, and I just worked, did my first step, and did my second step. Although it was kind of funny, I'll tell you about it. And um, and then the Lord's Prayer. We did the Lord's Prayer to close the meetings, and um, 
And I, I would just play games with it. I would start the first words but not finish it. I would not start until everybody else was well along and I'd chime in. I would just say the parts that I was comfortable with but not say the other parts. I would not say any of it. I would say all of it. I mean, it was just all over the map. And the third step prayer wasn't was better except instead of saying God, I offer, I couldn't say that. So I would say Master, I offer myself to thee. And so I had a different word for higher power. And that, that helped me a lot. That went along for um, about four months. It was December of 1988. I remember, um, I think I was in the shower. I, I do a contract for sobriety every morning. And and I, I needed to find a time when I could do it no matter what. And I realized I take a shower every day. Being in the shower undressed is a problem anyway for me, so so I might as well do my contract in the shower. And and I was doing my contract, and I would say, and my contract is, you know, Master, I commit myself to one more day of sexual sobriety. No sex with myself, no sex with any partner other than Jane. And from now until and then whatever is 24 hours later, because that's my contract. And all of a sudden, I, I just realized, I had this insight that any higher power that I could understand would want me sober. Because if I wasn't sober, I was useless. And by this time, I was convinced that my higher power, whatever it is, wanted me to be useful to other people. And that that was my purpose, is to, to be useful. Which the AA Big Book happens to say. So I thought, well, if I'm doing what Master, higher power, God wants me to do, I will be sober. And somehow that shifted things for me. It wasn't that I had to come to some understanding of God. It was just that I had to do what my higher power wanted me to do, and I would be sober, which is what I really wanted then, and I still want to this day. Well, that sort of opened a door, because then I, I realized I didn't have to. It's like you were talking about God judging you, being fearful of that, you know, the consequences. I had a lot of that, too, and, and I had this tremendous advantage. In fact, it writes about my kind of situation in 12 and 12. I was raised an atheist. Uh, I wrote a column once, you know, why I'm not an atheist. And I said, how could I be an atheist? I never had a God, you know. You know, you can't be without a God if you never had a God. And I was thought that was really clever of me. Well, but you see, I didn't have any baggage to unwind with God either. I didn't have a God, that's true, but I also had no baggage. I'd never been let down by God. I'd never been, you know, humiliated by God. I'd never been abandoned or any of those things. So that was just a tremendous advantage, that just circumstantial, I happened to come in with. What I did have, though, was my father and mother's God, which was atheism. And I was really stuck. And I'd been sober about two years when one day, it was in March, I realized that God, as I understand him, was going to be God. And that was God as I understood him, not as my father and mother understood him. And that really hit me hard. Because I, you know, that's what I grew up with. And I had to let go of that image of God, or non-God, or whatever. And, and I began to be able to talk comfortably about God uh, at that point. My wife says I'm more of a humanist than I ever was. I don't know. Uh, to me, God is all humanity. It's all the program. I, and yet I talk as if there's a, a, a God who loves me and who intervenes in my life. You know. So anybody listening to me. In fact, a, a guy I sponsor in Portland says, David, you know, he's an evangelical. He said, David, you know what you are? I said, what's that? He said, you're a non-practicing atheist. <laughs> I thought, that's it. <laughs> So so I've gotten to a point of being a non-practicing atheist. 
And um, but it was a very gradual process. What has happened, though, over the years is I've, I've used prayer as much as I am able. I've really turned my will and my life over to God as I understand him. And the gifts that have come back have been more than rich enough to keep me going on. So we had one more person and then we'll take a break. I'm Jeff, Ms. Exaholic. I have a some major questions about the issue of beauty and be- beauty. Yeah, um, I relate very strongly to the uh, I don't know who said it, but the expression tyranny of beauty. Um, and I recognize you know certain attraction as as being indicated indicative of lust. I, I guess my question is. It creates a real conflict because does that mean that eventually when I'm no longer celibate, that using beauty as a initial attraction is inappropriate? Is it inappropriate? Is is any um, relationship that was maybe initiated by that attraction invalid? Did everybody hear that about beauty? Uh, I'm David Sexaholic. The um, my experience with because it could be beauty, it might be intelligence, it might be success of any sort, monetary or you know esteem. It might be emotional serenity. There's there are lots of things that I could substitute and ask basically the same question. And um, what I have found. For me, first of all, I want to be sober more than anything else in the world. Cause, and, and it's only because I tried the other and I can remember it. And I tell my story enough that I'm reminded. I really believe that if I do what God wants me to do, I will be sober. Okay. That's okay. And, and I know that I have a self-centered disease that's cunning, baffling, and powerful, and it's always at work. And my sponsor gave me this great gift once. He said, David, if you're not sure what's going on, assume it's lust. He said, once in a long while, it won't be lust, and you'll be pleased, but the vast majority of the time, you'll be right. And that's turned out to be very safe. So I, I just assume it's lust. And then when my uh, another, I've had several sponsors, and one I had to change, and another one died, and so on. And the others, another sponsor said, um, lust is asking the world to be different than the way God provides it at that moment. Now, I'll tell you, that really messes with your mind. <laughs> Lust is asking the world to be different than the way God's giving it to us at this moment. Well, that's kind of uh, heavy duty. And so I, I find lust in a lot of things. And then, so all of that is kind of stabilizing. And then the where I go is step 11. And I suppose if there's any step that I'm most conscious of trying to organize my life around on a daily basis, that's it, which is sought through prayer and meditation. Okay. And, and meditation, by the way, if you can't figure out how to do meditation, it's, it's, it's in 12 and 12 under, it's very specific. Sit down, put your body in this position, put this sentence in your head, think about this sentence. I mean, that's the level of the instructions in 12 and 12, so it's there if you want to read it. Anyway, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. 
And so that's what I try to do. And then there comes the biggie. And it really is the answer to your question from my experience as well as the related questions. Praying only. And that is one of the most obnoxious words in the whole 12 steps. Praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry it out. Now, there, that little part there for me is very tricky because, first of all, it's only. It doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room like inclusive, you know, or a portion of, or something like that. And then God's will for us, and I didn't know what to do for a long time about the God's will thing until I finally got pushed into my face that it's whatever's in front of me. You know, that what God's will for me is what will be directly in front of me at that moment. Now, so if my mind is off somewhere else, well, then as my other sponsor said, that's lust. That's not what God's got in front of you. So, all right, and my, then my first sponsor was right. When in doubt, assume it's lust and go on from there. So praying only for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out. And and actually, that's not what the step says. I just misquoted it. Praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry it out. And that's the last thing is not only will be what's in front of me, it'll be what's there for us. Because, you know, I have a self-centered disease. What's in it for me is always my first question, assumption, predilection, whatever, you know. And that's not the first. The first word of the steps is we. It's not me or I. It's we. And in the step 11, it's God's will for us. And and I, so I have to come back. Okay, this is what's in front of me. What's God's will for us beyond David? What happens is beauty drops out of the picture. Intellect drops out of the picture. Uh, being successful drops out of the picture. Doesn't mean I won't have those things. I have an absolutely gorgeous wife. Now, I've told her that all along, but I mean different things by it today, you know. And, and Roy writes in the white book about his wife never could have held up, Irene, never could have held up to his standard of beauty. Because, if only because her body was going to change over time. But the truth is, my standard of beauty is, is lust. It's asking the world to be different than the way God provides it. And and what I'm looking for today is just, am I doing the next right thing? Am I doing it as a part of a we? And is it just, is it what's in front of me? And if it is, then it's a non-issue. Now, the trade-off is I see beauty today that I never saw before. I see success today that totally went past me, including my own as well as others. Uh, the trade-off is that God gives me more than I can handle all the time. So, uh, Let's take a break. We reassemble when? 2.45. Thank you, guys. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.